WNYC Studios. Okay, I'm Jad Abumrad. Wait, wait you're the... <laughs> you may remember me from every episode of Radio Lab ever, but I am here to talk to you about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the highest court in the land. Actually, there is a basketball court in the Supreme Court building that's located somewhere above the courtroom, so that's technically the highest court in the land, but it's another story. Anyhow, the nine justices who sit on the bench of the United States Supreme Court, that would be Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer, Thomas, Kennedy, Alito, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Gorsuch, we never voted for them, we can't re-elect them, and we certainly can't fire them. And yet they shape our country. They take on all the issues that divide us more and more. They are the ones that try and form that more perfect union. A while ago, it occurred to me that somebody needs to make a show about this. And so here we are. Allow me to introduce to you Radiolab's first and best spinoff. It is called More Perfect. More Perfect. On the show, we tell stories about all the stuff that divides us as a nation. Race, class, money, power, kittens. Kittens keep the giggly blue robot. Maybe not kittens, but we do talk about kittens. We report on things like how the court justified sending an entire racial group into internment camps during World War II and how that could easily happen again. If you're with the family, like my family or any Japanese family, you feel the pressure and the sadness. You know, I said, well, heck, I'm an American citizen too, you know. We talk about how a guy with a funny hat got the court to weigh in on the meaning of the Second Amendment, one of the most confusing sentences in the English language. (laughs) This is my favorite hat. Make America free again with a big Western handgun in the center. Was missing the trigger, so. We had to update it. And we talk about how Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as a young attorney, fought for women's rights by representing beer-loving bros. It was goofy. She was all for rocking the boat. She was for rocking the boat in a way that would stick. Race, guns, sex, not exactly what you thought when you heard Supreme Court show, right? More Perfect. Brought to you by WNYC Studios. WNYC Studios. See you in court. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. More perfect. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Oh, yay, oh, yay. For the court is now sitting. Oh, yay. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. We live in a democracy with three branches in it. You got the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. Now that third branch, the judicial, the courts, consists of about a hundred-ish federal courts, and on top of those courts is the court. This, this, this temple 
of nine unelected lifetime appointees who seem to have this tremendous power. Almost tyrannical power. They and are wickedly important, and we're reminded of this. Scalia's death throws a huge unknown factor into this campaign. Every time we turn on the TV. We are one justice away from losing our fundamental rights in this country. And we just saw how crazily complicated and fraught it's become to appoint a new justice. Where Republican sat on his nomination, I think it's the longest any nominee has had to wait for hearings, and the hearings government. never happened. It's a lifetime appointment that could shape American society for the next 40 years. Think about that. That means if Neil Gorsuch retires at the same age, he'll be making decisions until 2052. The most consequential decision I've ever been involved in was the decision to let the president being elected last year pick the Supreme Court nominee. The Supreme Court was, you know, we heard this over and over, was what made a lot of people uh, vote for... Uh, is What's the fact his name? That this next president may very well appoint between one and three four Supreme Court justices. Exactly. Donald and, Trump's and legacy when he leaves office will be wow. that he appointed the most conservative Supreme Court for many, many years. Well, you decades. just heard him say at the top of the hour, this is the most important thing I can do. Now, never mind that most Americans have no idea who the justices are. Two thirds can't even name a single justice. Uh... I honestly couldn't tell you any of their names. No, I, I can't even tell you. I don't know any. I don't either. <laughs> the only name of a judge I know is Judge Judy. Doesn't matter. We all know that whoever they are, they're incredibly powerful people. That they can, boom, instantly strike down a law that took years to pass. The Supreme Court reversed a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates. They can undo executive orders. They can even change like these long-held definitions, like what makes a person, what makes a marriage. They can even decide an election. Justice Scalia? My usual response is get over it. Get over the possible corrupting of the American presidential system. (laughs) Now, with all the attention the Supreme Court's been getting lately, it's sort of interesting to think about the fact that when it comes to the court's power, it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. (laughs) And it wasn't. For a long time. And it wasn't for a long time. Yeah. Reporter Kelsey Padgett will take it from here. I mean, if you go back in time, say like early 1800s, the court had so little power. Hmm. In fact, they were meeting in the basement of Congress. That's uh, Linda Monk, constitutional scholar. One newspaper refers to it later as a dark, dank potato hole. <laughs> a potato hole. <laughs> like it was damp or something? I mean, D.C. at this time was like a swamp. Uh-huh. So I imagine there were spiders in there, and they said there weren't very many windows. Well... Maybe it wasn't that bad, but still. We think of three separate branches. It's kind of hard to think of yourself as a separate branch when you're meeting in the basement of Congress. Not only that. When Congress actually sets up the first Supreme Court, they created originally a Supreme Court of six justices. That's Yale Law Professor Akil Reed Amar. Six justices. That kind of reminds me of that one time just recently. An even number. How odd. Today, we're freaked out. Oh, the court could be divided 4-4. What's going to happen? Oh, my God. It could be a 4-4 split. What happens then? The Supreme Court is not designed to function with an even number of justices. You know, um, uh, we're we're, uh, uh, in a crisis. So should cable news be creating their constitutional crisis graphics? Originally, the first Congress, they created six members because they're not imagining the court as deciding everything. In other words, like, you know, if the court split, who cares? Because at the time, they weren't deciding big cases. They weren't deciding, like, affirmative action, Roe v. Wade, nothing like that. They were handling, like, these little tiny rinky-dink cases. 
and most of their time was spent literally riding in carriages from town to town. Trying cases around the country, and that's a big hassle. They don't even get to sleep in their own beds. Wait, why are they riding around? Well, so they actually each had a separate geographical zone that they're in charge of, and that's actually still true today. But unlike today, when, where people, you know, come to the Supreme Court, back then... People weren't coming to them. Why would I do that? <laughs> That's Ellie. Ellie Mistal, our legal editor. Why would I go seek out these guys someplace else to hear my local issue in South Carolina? If they have something to say about it, they can come to South Carolina, sit on my farm, and talk to me. Got to think about the about the country in 1800 and 1804. This is a states' rights, states-centric country. All of which is to say that being a Supreme Court justice at the time... It's not a great gig. It's, it's rough. Consequently, <laughs> the people who chose to do this, well... They're kind of misfits. Uh, yeah, totally. And who are, like, really smart, but, like, a motley crew that isn't organized. That's Ari Savitsky. He's a lawyer, constitutional history enthusiast. He says at the time on the court, you had this one guy nicknamed Old Bacon Face. Who has, is like a maniac. He's like the kind of like Charlie Sheen, wild thing in Major League type character. Very hot tempered, had a foul mouth. There's another one who, um, you know, is like four foot five and like really silent. The Supreme Court was like a pretty ragtag bunch. All of this happens, and I think it's important for, for people to understand, all of this happens in part because the Constitution is embarrassingly silent on what the Supreme Court is, what it should do, how it should be constituted. Article 3 says, Article 3 of our United States Constitution um, says, there shall be a Supreme Court. Thanks, guys. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's kind of weird. Like, if you read the Constitution... Boy, it spends a lot of time just talking about the House of Representatives. How are you going to count slaves? And it's going to be by population. There has to be a census every 10 years because the House is important. But when it comes to the Supreme Court, all you get is like a couple of sentences. Almost nothing at all. You know, and that's that's kind of the puzzle of this. Like, how did they get so powerful? I mean, they started out as these, like, nobodies in a basement. And now they're these all-powerful, you know, priests of the Constitution. The Supreme Court of the United States. Nine men. And women. High in government, who sit in judgment on many of the great questions before our nation. So how did that happen? Especially when there's, like, arguably nothing in the Constitution that said that that should happen. All right, so how did it happen? Well... You could trace so much of this back to one move by one man. John Marshall. John Marshall. John Marshall. The new chief justice. He arrives to the court in 1801. Marshall like calls his first meeting of the court. And one person shows up. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean the other? I tell you, they got something better to do. Like They just don't show up. Actually, it was three, but still. Wait, before we go too deep, can you just, like, what did he look like? Oh, they all look the same to me. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't mean that. He was tall. He was gaunt. He had a square jaw. Very jowly. Piercing eyes. Marshall was a a smart cookie. And he would need to be because he ends up getting in this very famous fight with his very famous second cousin that would change the course of the American history, like, forever. Who's his uh, very famous second cousin? Well... 
Just a little old man named Thomas Jefferson. Oh, TJ. Now, John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson really, really, really don't like each other. Phew. I mean, on a personal level, you think Hamilton and Jefferson is something on Broadway. Actually, it was Marshall and Jefferson who really despised each other. And yet they both come from Virginia. They both come from the back country. Why all the hate? Well, I mean, part of it was this, like, family beef. At one point, John Marshall's wife's mother rejected Thomas Jefferson romantically. What? Yeah. Wait, his wife's mother? Yeah, so his, so his, his mother-in-law... mother-in-law. Yeah. said no to the great Thomas Jefferson. I know. But that doesn't seem like enough of a reason. Well, I mean, okay, so the main reason, the non-gossipy reason, the non-fun reason, is because they were in opposite political parties. I think an important thing to understand about Marshall is that he's a party man. Okay? He's a party man. He's a party man. Like he likes to party. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he, he's committed to his team, and his team is um, are the Federalists. The Federalists, they love big government. Let's have a national bank. To rev up national power. The Republicans, Thomas Jefferson's people, they like small, tiny government. Let the states have the power. You know, we're maybe even in favor of the view that states can veto a federal law if they don't like it. So these two guys, these two cousins, both national figures, totally different philosophies. And even before Marshall hits the court, they're going at it. They beef and they beef and they beef. It's actually a slugfest. To paraphrase... Marshall, you're dishonest. Jefferson, you're a hack. Marshall, you and your friends are poisoning America. It's like the, it's a food fight. It's very difficult to stop the tendency to view the people that you disagree with as, um, as evil. (laughs) We need somebody that can take our jobs back, Frank, because we're going to hell. It's really hard. We do that today all the time, right? They even, as much if not more than today, they thought that the other side was trying to destroy the America that they had just created. Anyway, throughout the 1790s, the Federalists are in power. The Federalists hold all the, you know, branches uh, of government. John Adams is president, mostly loved by his own party, hated by Thomas Jefferson's party. They literally call him, like, his rotundity. (laughs) Very offensive. So Adams is in power, and ultimately our guy, John Marshall. Marshall is Secretary of State, one of the highest officials in the Adams administration. You know, party man. And for a while, things are going well for his party. But then, in 1800, Thomas Jefferson and the Republicans sweep in and crush, absolutely crush the Federalists. Like landslide crush? Yeah. Fleetwood Mac style. The Republicans ran the table in 1800. They're going to take over the House. They're going to take over the presidency. So John Adams is like, crap, what do I do? We need to save the Republic. Uh, The Federalists have basically been swept out. But in his dire moment, he has this idea. He's thinking like, oh, I've lost the House. I've lost the White House. Oh, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court. And normally nobody cares about the Supreme Court. But like in this moment, he's thinking, oh, my gosh, this is my last hope. And in fact, as luck would have it, a vacancy pops up. A vacant chief justice position. The, The sitting chief justice, Oliver Ellsworth, steps down and Adams picks his secretary of state. John Marshall to be the new chief justice. Ta-da! That's how we got John Marshall. And John Adams does one other thing. 
In the waning seconds of his presidency, Adams and these repudiated Federalists jam through a whole bunch of federal judgeships. They create scores of new judges. And they throw Federalists into almost all of those positions. Like 40 appointments. He just throws in 40 judges right at the last minute. Congress creates 40 judges at the last minute, and then he appoints 40 judges at the last minute. If I were Jefferson, I would be pissed. Jefferson is pissed. Which we'll get to in a second. But in the meantime, Adams has just a few days left in his presidency, so he's like frantically trying to get all these judges in. Nominate these people, confirm them. Once you confirm someone, you have to like give them their commission. You can't just go around claiming you're a judge or claiming you're whatever. You have to have a commission, like a piece of paper with the formal seal and the signature of the president. And as the story goes... As the clock is striking midnight on John Adams' last day... Adams and his team, they're in his office, and they're trying to get these papers out the door. They're frantically signing them and stamping them. I just imagine, like, young boys sprinting through the dead of night <laughs> with these, waving these papers over their head. Your commission! Your commission! And in fact, the, the, like, I think totally apocryphal story is that Jefferson's attorney general, like, busts in the door at midnight, and he's like, put down your pen, you know? <laughs> don't do it. So, but apparently some of the commissions don't get delivered. They just are left sitting on the desk because it is... Was it like an oversight or something or clerical error? It's not even like a clear... They they just ran out of time. Wow. But they thought like if a couple are left on the desk, it's no big deal. Because like it's a signed commission from the president. It's like still a binding document. The fact that it wasn't formally delivered, you know, you still get your appointment. So this sets up this like kind of terrible situation for Jefferson. He shows up the next day to take power... And the judiciary is filled with ghosts of presidential appointees past. Just a bastion of partisan judges. So, as you can imagine, Jefferson and his friends think that this this is not fair. Jefferson sees Marshall and all of the other judges that Adams appointed as Adams' spies on his administration. So Jefferson, he decides to immediately retaliate because, you know, he won the presidency. He won by a lot. And he's like, you're shoving all these judges down my throat? And on top of that, the guy you've named to be the head of the judges, the head of the Supreme Court, is my evil second cousin? What? What is this? So Jefferson is running the country and working with the Republican Congress to, among other things... Cancel the Supreme Court term for 1802. <laughs> <laughs> they so, just canceled the whole term? They just canceled it. They were what like, did they say? Like, go home? Yeah, they were like, there's no more Supreme Court. Sorry. Supreme Court? Go to your room. Anyhow, Marshall is sent away for over a year. There's no full Supreme Court meetings. And when he comes back, it's pretty clear to him that the Supreme Court, it's on life support. That the Republicans could pull the plug at any minute. Marshall knows already that there are there are rumblings that one of his colleagues, a man named Chase, old bacon face, you know, that guy should be impeached. So when he sees this motley crew in a dark, dank potato hole, he's like, I got to do something. We're fighting for our life here. I was thinking about this on the way over, and it kind of reminds me of, you know, those, like, summer camp movies where there's, like, a baseball team, and they're, like, super ragtag and, like, can't get it together. And then, like, at the end, they have to, like, play the really good team with, like, the nice professional uniforms. That's kind of, like, the judges on the Supreme Court. And Marshall is kind of, like, the counselor, the camper, you know, the the new kid on the block who, who comes to the team and is like, we can do this, guys. We can do it. 
cute 80s movie training montage. He knows that if the U.S. is even going to have a court system with the Supreme Court, he's got to beef this team up. One of the first things that Marshall does is just professionalize the judiciary. Like, so for example, he starts this tradition of wearing black robes. That made them look the part. The judges appeared in their robes of justice. He figured that the black robes would make them look less like partisan hacks and, and, and more like they're floating above the fray beyond politics. Next, he moves all the justices into this one dorm. The same rooming house. No wives, no family, all business. He's trying to create that more perfect union in the judiciary. And just to grease the wheels a little bit. Have some Madeira, my dear. <laughs> Is that some wine? Yes, it's a fortified wine. Justice Marshall would order it in great quantities. That, many scholars think, was part of John Marshall's secret. Okay, so he's professionalizing the team, he's getting them together, and then they get put to the test in 1803. It's a cousin-on-cousin smackdown. That's coming up when we continue. We've got more Supreme Court stories to share with you. You can find More Perfect on Apple Podcasts, Google Music Play, or at moreperfectpodcast.org. I'm Jad Abumrad. Back in a moment. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. This is More Perfect, a show about the Supreme Court from Radiolab. Back to our story from Kelsey Padgett. And now we arrive at the pivotal moment, the cousin-on-cousin smackdown that would change America. Okay, so remember how Ari told us that some of those commissions didn't get delivered? Yeah. I think five. And that they were just like sitting on a desk somewhere? Mm -hmm. And how they thought it wasn't a big deal? Because it's still a binding document. Well, when Jefferson comes to power, apparently he finds those papers and is like, oh, look at this. You didn't deliver these commissions. Guess you can't get those positions. Sorry. And one of the people that... um lost out because their commission did not get delivered was one Mr. William Marbury. He was a businessman. 39 years of age. He got appointed to be Justice of the Peace. It's a pretty low-ranking position. So he's sitting there and he's waiting for his commission to show up. And like, of course, it never does. And it finally dawns on him like, oh, the Jefferson administration has it. I'm going to go get it. He files a lawsuit. So, and ha- what he does is actually it ends up being really important, but he files a lawsuit directly in the Supreme Court. Wait, you can do that? You can just go right to the Supreme Court? Like first? Well, at this time, Congress had just passed a law that said, like, in certain very strange circumstances, you can just go directly to the Supreme Court. He goes directly to the Supreme Court and he says, I have a right. I have a legal right. I want you, the Supreme Court, to order Thomas Jefferson, give me that darn piece of paper that says I'm really a judge. The case gets named Marbury v. Madison because James Madison is Jefferson's secretary of state, who he's actually suing, but... He's essentially suing the president. Forcing Marshall in the court to have this confrontation with Jefferson. So now it's the showdown. It's between Marshall's ragtag team and Jefferson. So basically what happens is the court has a trial. 
Marbury and his lawyers, they get up there and they're like, what happened to the papers? Where is the commission? Did you have them? What'd you do with them? Jefferson's people get up there and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I won't answer the question of what happened to them. They stonewall. To which Marbury's lawyers are like, seriously? These are all like important official documents signed by the president. Like, no one knows what happened to them. Like, it's <laughs> <laughs> like They go back and forth. Back and forth. Things get very tense. And, you know, I mean, to their credit, like no one like gets punched out. Eventually, they stop arguing about whether or not the papers exist. And they're like, this is the more important question. Does the Jefferson administration have to honor those papers? Do they have to give the commission to Marbury? Are they required? Is there a legal requirement that they give it to him? And in Marshall's head, it's a resounding... Hell yeah. He should have gotten that commission. Because the law is the law. And if you decide you're not going to follow the law just because you don't like the guy who made the law, or you don't think it's fair... That's anarchy. I mean, that's we, we talk a lot in this country. We pat ourselves on the back in this country about our peaceful transfer of power. Ellie Mistal again. About how we seamlessly can go from one party to the other party without bloodshed in the streets and whatever. Yeah, good for us. We, but, but how did we actually get to that point? And this is a key reason why we've gotten to that point, because the decisions of the past administration still hold value even when that administration is kicked out of office, kind of overthrown by popular vote. Their decisions still have, still have sway, still have legal force. Jefferson was quite obviously uh, negating that. So Marshall wants to say to Jefferson, you know, suck it up, cousin. Give this guy his papers. You're an official. Do your job. But he thinks twice. He understands how weak his court is. According to Akhil Amar, Marshall's afraid that if he orders Jefferson to give over those papers, Jefferson is going to straight up laugh in his face and say, you and what army? I'm not going to do it. Literally, they just got back from a congressionally mandated, you can't come to work time. Jefferson knows full well that he has no intention of granting that commission. He will never give that commission. Jefferson knows this. Marshall knows this. Marshall knows that if he tells Jefferson to give him the commission, Jefferson is going to ignore him, and then the power of the Supreme Court basically evaporates. Because Ellie says, like, if you think about it, if the executive branch is going to say kind of right at the jump that if you make a decision that I don't like, I'm just going to ignore that, then every executive branch going on from Jefferson throughout the rest of our history is going to just ignore the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court does something that the executive doesn't like. So basically, Marshall's kind of stuck. If he rules for Jefferson, he's selling out the law and he's going to make the court look weak. If he rules against Jefferson, Jefferson's going to ignore the court, and they're going to look weak. Either way... Jefferson wins. And either way, the Supreme Court maybe disappears forever. Marshall needed to find a way um, to get through this. He needed to find some way to kick this case. To be clear, John Marshall is running away from a fight with Thomas Jefferson. He says all sort of things, but he knows that Thomas Jefferson, you know, straight up has more power, and so he's retreating. Wow, this is like suddenly feels like an apocalyptical moment. Yeah. What does he do? Well, so the thing that he does, it's like the most Jedi masterish thing ever. He writes this 100-something page decision, and in the beginning... If you actually read the decision, it's a lot of pages of telling Jefferson how he's wrong, how he can't do what he did, how he's, you know, ruining America, right? There's a lot of that in the Marshall decision. But then, when he gets to the matter at hand, 
he does this little shift. So he says, okay, hold up. Yes. Marbury is right. He should have gotten that commission. And yes, Mr. Jefferson should not be doing this. But we, the Supreme Court, we don't have jurisdiction to hear this case. Court needs to have the power to hear a case. And if a court doesn't have the power to hear a case, even if you are completely right, even if your position is right, you can't get relief. Wait, why would he say that they don't have jurisdiction? What's well, their... so this is like where he uses the force. You know, earlier I had mentioned that Marbury brought this case under a law Congress had passed that said Marbury could come straight to the Supreme Court, like for this kind of situation. Well, John Marshall, he goes back to his constitution. He's reading around. He's like, oh, he's just, mm, trying to figure out like what he can do here. And he finds this little sentence. Yeah. So it's Article 3, Section 2. In the Constitution. Um, That says, like, basically, you're not supposed to go to the Supreme Court first. You're supposed to go to a different court and then the Supreme Court. It's an appeals court. Wonky. (laughs) Exactly. But, But he basically tells Marbury, the plaintiff. You came in and you came to the Supreme Court first. And you did that because Congress passed a law that said that you could come to the Supreme Court first. But... The Constitution says that you can't come to the Supreme Court first. So I can't help you. Nope. It's not your fault, Mr. Marbury. But that law was unconstitutional. And we're not going to follow that unconstitutional directive. So you see what he did there? I, maybe I see, I don't know <laughs> if I see. <laughs> well, okay, so it's, you know that, you know that part in Star Wars? I was a weak old man. The first one where Obi-Wan Kenobi is fighting with Darth Vader and he says, If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you. This is like that, but real. Marshall is agreeing to lose. He's like found this way to lose, to like let Darth Vader strike him down. That's actually going to make him more powerful. He's basically saying to his cousin, okay, you don't have to give Marbury's commission. And the reason you don't have to give Marbury's commission is is, uh, because that law doesn't work. Because we, the court, we get to decide when something agrees with or doesn't agree with the Constitution. So, like, congrats. You win, cousin. Oh, and by the way, we, the court, have the power to declare things unconstitutional. That was the sort of Jedi master move. That's the move. Instead of jumping off the cliff or laying down, he jukes to the right, and he establishes a new rule of the game. Unconstitutional. Inside this one highly technical, highly political drama between these two cousins, John Marshall sneaks in an atomic bomb, this incredible power. And in Marshall's decision, he wrote, It's emphatically the duty and province of the judicial department to say what the law is. Say what the law is. To say what the law is. And with those words, he made the court what it is today. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled Monday a law allowing Americans born in Jerusalem to list Israel as their place of birth is unconstitutional. Is unconstitutional. Down. Doma is ruled unconstitutional. 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 And no one had ever done that before? Well, I mean, like, people talked about it, and there was, like, lots of theories about it, and some smaller courts, smaller decisions. But this is the first time that the Supreme Court does it. And he does it in the face of the president. Roe against Wade. Ernesto A. Miranda, petitioner versus Arizona. Nixon against the United States. And that set us on this path. New York Times Company, petitioner versus L.B. Sullivan. Today, 
the court is so much more powerful. It's grown into the 800-pound gorilla. When it um, says jump, other branches tend to say how high. We'll hear argument now in number 00949, George W. Bush and Richard And we just take it for granted. Three words, Bush v. Gore. They decided the presidential election, and, and no one blinked. Let me just jump in for one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you could reasonably argue that Marbury versus Madison was not the big moment when the court got its power because it really depends on what you mean when you say power. Like as we were talking with our legal editor Ellie Mistalin, like constitutional scholar Linda Monk, they both said, "Like, look at what happens after this case. Just thirty years down the road, ish." John Marshall's still the chief justice. He gets into a dust-up with Andrew Jackson. And this is Jackson we're talking about. So generally it was, I would like to do horrible things to Native Americans. And the court was like, you probably shouldn't do horrible things to Native Americans. And Jackson was like, shut up! (laughs) I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. So essentially you had a situation where Marshall makes a ruling saying we have to respect Native American sovereignty. And Andrew Jackson famously said... Or supposedly said. We don't know if that's true. Uh, Look, I think it's more fun to believe that Jackson did say that. It it works better in the musical. Okay. (laughs) The court has made its ruling. Now let them enforce it. John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. And obviously he couldn't. So to make a long, sad story short, you get the Trail of Tears. Thousands of Native Americans were marched off their lands. There's evidence that they were purposefully moved during the winter so that more people would die along the way. So while the court maybe had constitutional authority, it didn't have actual power. Until... We've just got a report here on this end that the students are in. Fast forward to the 1950s. Court orders schools to desegregate. They don't. And the president sends in the troops. Takes Eisenhower. Executive order. Directing the use of troops under... Putting boots on the ground. Takes Kennedy. The presence of Alabama National Guardsmen. Putting boots on the ground. Takes force. It still so often comes down to an executive willing to put boots on the ground in order to enforce their laws. That's when the power becomes real. Although maybe not. Ellie, I don't know a time before I went to college, and even shortly after I was in college, where things were not separate. At one point as we were working on the story, Ellie talked to his mom, and she told him that when she was growing up in the mid-60s, and this is years after desegregation, more than a decade past Brown v. Board, you would still never know it happened. No one would know it in Clarksdale, Mississippi at that time. There was a public library, but I was not allowed to go to that library. My father, who was Chinese, could go into the library. So many times I'd sit in the car while Dad went into the library to get a book that I wanted. And this is, this is after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, even. Yes. I'm saying high school. I graduated in 67. 67, wow. Just yesterday, as we're recording this, um, a court had to issue, a current court had to issue another ruling ordering a town in Mississippi to desegregate its schools. Yeah. That, yeah. that didn't happen five years ago. That happened yesterday, man. Yesterday. The courts can make these laws. But if the people aren't willing to go along with it, then what do these laws mean? I think ultimately I agree with learned hand. 
He was a judge in New York in the early 1900s. That we place our hopes too much upon laws and courts and constitutions, that these are false hopes. Liberty lies in the hearts of men and women, and when it dies there, no law, no court, no constitution can save it. In the end, for better or worse, we the people still have the power. This is more perfect back after a break. This is More Perfect from Radiolab. I'm Jad Abumrad. So Justice John Marshall sort of conceptualized the Supreme Court as this co-equal branch of the federal government, just as big and powerful as the president. Actually, it's a branch of government that could one day decide who the president will be, as we all found out. With all that power, of course, comes secrecy. Generally speaking, we the people have a right to know what our government is doing. You know, there's a paper trail, there are presidential records, congressional records. The Supreme Court... Not so much. And this was another of John Marshall's ideas. A Supreme Court justice, after he retires, can do whatever he or she wants with the papers, the notes, and the drafts that they make when they're making the laws that shape our country. Now, this policy, or lack of, actually led to the biggest heist in the history of the Supreme Court, the theft of Justice Frankfurter's papers from the Library of Congress. You've never heard of this because it happened right around the time of Nixon's Watergate scandal. But... It is a mystery that the historian Jill Lepore recently tried to solve. More perfect correspondent Sean Ramsfirm spoke to her about it. In such an ecosystem where it's so hard to gain access to these papers, to these documents, at some point someone might try to gain access to them unlawfully, which you once wrote a wonderful story about that I was hoping you could maybe Retell, and I, I was thinking that here we are telling stories. So I, yeah, so I, imagine uh, we're sitting by the fire. Yeah. You can hear it kind of crackle. And <laughs> yeah. there's uh, the evening's crickets this is on my the edge plan. of the field. Yeah. So the largest heist in the history of the Library of Congress. I guarantee you would not have guessed before you read this story <laughs> of mine, because I would not have guessed that it was the papers of Felix Frankfurter. More than a 1,000 pages of Frankfurter's papers were stolen from the Library of Congress in the early 1970s. They have never been recovered, not a single page of them. It was a kind of extraordinary heist that was investigated by the FBI. They had a prime suspect. They can, you know, had, there was a grand jury called. This was an extensive investigation, involved the nation's leading journalist, involved other members of the court, the nation's leading legal scholars were questioned and were part of the investigation. The whole thing unraveled days, hours before the Saturday Night Massacre and the sort of explosion of Watergate and was quickly forgotten because (laughs) kind of compared to the impeachment of Richard Nixon and the story of the White House tapes, the papers of the forgotten Supreme Court justice just didn't seem as exciting of a news story. It's kind of too bad because I think if the story had gained a little bit more media attention, it, it would have been it would have been resolved. 
does all of this this immense personality, this historic figure, does this play into why it was his papers that were stolen or were they just the ones that were in the library at the right time for someone to steal? Yeah, I don't think we know that unless the mystery were really solved. Mm. And I felt like I got so close. What did you um, miss? What what didn't you have to put it all together? It can you reveal that? I I guess when you think about it, we're trying to solve a theft. You need to know the motive of the thief. And to know the motive of the thief, you need to know what was stolen. But in Frankfurter's case, his papers had only really just got to the Library of Congress. So when the papers disappeared for a long time, nobody even noticed it because they hadn't really processed them. They shouldn't probably have been letting people look at them because it's then you can it's hard to reconstruct what's missing. What's clear from what was missing of these more than a thousand pages is that it was the best stuff. And so one theory that the FBI had early on was someone's trying to make money because you could like all of it. Frankfurter's correspondence with Lyndon Johnson, for instance, was missing. And you're like, oh, it's presidential signature. You could sell that. I mean, where are you going to sell these things is another question. But like maybe that that was <laughs> the case. But the next theory that the library working with the FBI had was, okay, so it's a scholar. <laughs> and, and a scholar who just who wants to have it, like wants to have this stuff and doesn't want anybody else to have it. Like a fanatic, well, like a collector or something. Like a, yeah, like or just, you know, sometimes when, you, um, when you're working on a project, just for like a journalist, you don't want to be scooped. Scholars have the same thing. Like if you find out something incredibly juicy, like imagine that someone's reading Frankfurter's diary and finds out, okay, Frankfurter... I don't know, he slept with William Douglas's wife or something. I don't know like, what it would be like. There's something. And it, are, are we fanfictioning Frank? We're fanfictioning Frank. He's going to like rule against him forever. And, you know, like just something that you'd be like, I'm going to write a biography of Frank Furter and this is how I'm going to sell it. Right? right. So the last thing you would want would be for another scholar to come. I, I've had this, I have find things in the archives all the time. And I'm like, shoot. They put it back in the box and you give it back to the librarian and you know that someone else is going to call it. I'm never going to get this out in time. And you just kind of forget about it because as you you imagine it's just too cool. Someone else is going to find it. So maybe someone like that, like that, you could imagine a journalist just right. You we can imagine this person, right, and who just can't resist. And there was no security in the Library of Congress at the time. I taught, I interviewed everybody who was investigated by the FBI, and they had these hilarious stories. They're like, yeah, well, they had a photocopy. They're like a Xerox machine, like an early Xerox machine, and you like put a nickel in it. But they would just let you take folders down. It was like down the hall and up a set of stairs and through a double doors and go through the bathroom <laughs> and out the back door of the bathroom and there was this one Xerox machine you could put a nickel in and you just walk out the door with your folders and like you can't do that <laughs> anymore not in the library of congress really not anywhere and it was this case that actually led to a crackdown so the FBI quickly came to the conclusion that whoever had bothered to do the incredible labor of stealing all those papers cuz a lot of smuggling would have been someone who both really wanted to write about Frankfurter, had found something incredibly juicy, but had been thwarted by the kind of cabal of Frankfurter people, which was, these people are called the hot dogs. They really are called who, the hot who dogs. Who are the hot dogs? Is that not the best thing? We're sitting by the campfire. Now is when the hot dogs <laughs> go on the, like, we've been sharpening our wooden sticks, our green wooden sticks. Now you put on the hot dogs and roast them. The hot dogs are the former clerks of Frankfurt. Wow. 
They were known as the hot dogs, and they loved him because, like many, an ordinary person, you know, apparently was just a very stand-up person to work with hmm. when you're on the inside. And they were, con- you know, kind of protecting his legacy. Anyway, so the case just kind of just gets steamrolled by Watergate. But this is kind of like the Alex Jones theory of the Felix Frank. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Should I sit out? Oh, maybe it's not. It's not. No, it's not. To be in fairness, because actually they're two incredibly uh, diligent legal scholars who piece, piece this element of the story together. Um, here's the, the crazy, the last chapter of the last. One of the pieces of paper that appears to have been missing from Frankfurter's papers is really interesting and was potentially quite damaging to William Rehnquist, who had been nominated to serve on the court and whose confirmation proceedings were happening right at the time that Frankfurter's papers were ransacked. What was controversial for Rehnquist was the issue that had thwarted Nixon's earlier judicial appointments, which was his relationship to segregation. Nixon, who you'll recall was pursuing a Southern strategy trying to woo uh, white Southern Democrats, had nominated some potential justices who were segregationists or certainly had been segregationists earlier in their career. In any case, Rehnquist was not, but Rehnquist served as a clerk for Robert Jackson in the 1950s and asked by Jackson to prepare a memo about Brown v. Board Rehnquist had written a memo in which he wrote, I realize it is an unpopular and unhumanitarian position for which I have been excoriated by liberal colleagues, but I think Plessy v. Ferguson was right and should be reaffirmed. (laughs) Plessy v. Ferguson, the 1896 Mm. decision uh, that instituted the legal principle of separate but equal to establish the system of Jim Crow, legalize the system of Jim Crow. And so it's published, you know, in Newsweek, and then it becomes explosive and a real big problem for Rehnquist during his confirmation. Rehnquist worked very hard to quiet that storm. He said, I wasn't expressing my own views. I was asked to write a memo about Justice Jackson's views. Whoa. And and Jackson's former secretary, Elsie Douglas, she told reporters, that's just a lie. Like, Jackson didn't ask his clerks to write down memos about what Jackson should think. Jackson knew what he thought. He asked his clerks to tell him what they thought so he could elaborate, you know, so he could kind of deliberate on the multiple positions that they would present him with. So Rehnquist sends a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee trying to explain all of this. Senate Judiciary Committee threatens to hold hearings over the holiday or after Christmas. This is December of 1971. Uh, Nixon starts putting pressure on on senators. And you can imagine somebody at this point might have thought, I wonder if there's anything in Frankfurter's papers, which are huge, which have just been given to the, you know, recently given to the Library of Congress that would cast light on the Rehnquist nomination. And one of the things that is no longer in Frankfurter's papers but appears to have been before the the theft is a letter that Rehnquist wrote to Frankfurter in 1955 on the question of segregation. The memo to Jackson was from 1952. uh, And there are these two legal scholars, Brad Snyder and John Barrett, who argue that Rehnquist would have revisited the arguments that he made in 1952 in that letter to Frankfurter. And it Someone from the FBI or from the Nixon White House or one of the White House plumbers or any of these nefarious yeah. people could have been told by Nixon, by Haldeman, by, you know, any of these jokers in the White House, Nixon White House, 
get yourself, to get your ass down to the Library of Congress and pull anything from Rehnquist from Frankfurter's papers. But to hide your tracks, just take a bunch of that crap out. You know, when we want to make it, we want to make it look like someone actually stole Frankfurter's papers, like as if anybody cared. You know what I mean? Like that it was the whole thing was yet another Watergate cover-up, you know, yet another kind of not a dirty trick, which is kind of a cool theory, isn't it? It's great. It's great. Is that conspiracy theory also to you, in your eyes, the most credible, or do you do you have an alternate theory of who may have taken them? Do you think it could have been just some nebbish academic or or biographer? I do have a theory, I'm a fair nervous. amount of evidence for that theory. Okay, I can't tell you that theory. Oh, and in that theory, we are disappointed to learn that it is very unlikely that the papers still exist. The FBI had a prime suspect yeah. who denied any involvement and re- did not accept an offer for kind of amnesty in exchange for returning the papers. So although, you know, th- they tended to believe that that person probably had the papers. The FBI never made an arrest. The FBI absolutely never made an arrest. And they, they talked to a lot of people. They did, they did take the investigation really seriously. But on the other hand, if the FBI had conducted the heist in the first place, <laughs> wouldn't their investigation have been just designed to cover up sure. that they were the culprits? It would have to be thorough. Yeah, right. I mean, they're not going to be like, oh, the Library of Congress calls and Frankfurter's <laughs> papers are missing and be like, yeah, we're too busy because that would look that that would look very suspicious if they'd taken them. I love that theory. I think sure. it's a fun theory. <laughs> it explains a lot. It's great. But, it's it, great. but, it, but there's very little evidence. I'm just going to be completely clear. So what's the Supreme Court's official policy and all the papers that go through the Supreme Court? What do they do with all that stuff? The Supreme Court's official policy is it is none of your business. Mm. It's very surprised. I myself was frankly surprised to discover this, that the National Records Act, the Presidential Records Act, legislation that protects the other papers of the federal government specifically excludes the Supreme Court. So... What happens is completely up to the justices, including, most importantly, the discussions that the judges have in conference and their notes from those discussions and the papers that their clerks assemble for them in preparing how to consider a case or preparing for a case that they decide not to consider. It's completely the discretion of the justices whether to preserve that for the future, for historians, for the public, for that matter, uh, for journalists, uh, they could destroy it all, and they often do. And how far back does this date? It goes back to John Marshall, who's one of the most important chief justices. Marshall was an incredibly effective leader of the court. But he, he, he under his tenure, the court gained an enormous amount of stature. But he really believed that for the justices to be able to confer with full candor their deliberations needed to be secret in perpetuity. A lot of people at the time opposed it. Jefferson, in particular, thought it was completely inexcusable. That a, a, a really important value in a republic is transparency. And Marshall was essentially making a power grab. I mean, a bit, that, that, that he loved the idea of the mystery of the court, the court and the mystique of the court. I mean, he was a great, he was a great lover of power. So um, the tradition dates for Marshall, and there are very strong arguments to be made in favor of the deliberations being kept secret, I think, certainly for a period of time. But that we should never know what was behind these decisions is, I think, uh, from the vantage of a historian. Ah! <laughs> That's not okay. Um, <laughs> but from the, the political principle, I, that, there are strong debates on the other side. There's a strong argument to be made that, that, is, that it is indefensible. 
First of all, they can decide to save nothing. They can burn their papers, as no small number of them have indeed done. Second, they can decide they're going to give their papers to an archive. Then they can give it at an, to a really inconvenient archive. <laughs> um, these are people whose career has been spent paid by taxpayer funds to do the work of the federal government. And these, the portion of their papers that concerns the work they did for the federal government, a lot of people might say, <laughs> belongs to the public. My own view is it is indefensible that the court has no policy with regard to court-related papers of its justices. They're rules people. These people can't set a rule for themselves and live by it. I understand they don't want Congress setting a rule about it, that, that for them that falls under a separation of powers issue, but they should have the rule. And the rule just shouldn't be you can have your kids decide to burn all of your papers when you die. What do you think it would take for such a rule at this point to be passed? I would have thought, honestly, that it might have come in the aftermath of the Bush v. Gore decision in 2000, when people might have said, you know what, <laughs> Supreme Court's really powerful, and in an era of judicial supremacy, we actually need the Supreme Court to be saving its papers, because future generations need to understand by what means did those nine people come to that decision. If you could steal the papers of any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, or just, you know, borrow for a weekend to pour over Whose would you steal? Oh, my gosh. That's a good question. Uh, I'm going to just go for the gold here. Uh Uh-huh. John Marshall. Classic. Yeah, just the kind of original guy. He was Jefferson's cousin. He served on the bench with Bushrod Washington, George Washington's cousin. These guys were making momentous decisions early on. You know, Madison v. v. Marbury. Did he wrangle people into that? Okay, so this is what I mean. Like, who cares but me? <laughs> it's not, I, got, I don't really want it. Was he like, was he sleeping with the boarding house owner? No, you, you, chose, you chose the guy who, like, invented the Supreme Court. That's a good choice. That's a good choice. I'm prepared to defend it. Second choice, Felix. More perfect correspondent Sean Ramos firm speaking to New Yorker writer Jill Lepore. The Supreme Court may be hyper-powerful, calling elections, life appointments, doing whatever they want with their documents. But most Americans still cannot name them. The vast majority of our country, like 66%, cannot name one single justice. We also found when we went out that a lot of people had no idea how many justices there are. I do not know how many Supreme Court justices there are. I'm not sure. It's either 12 or a couple hundred. One, six? Seven Supreme Court judges. 24, maybe? 12. Nine? Nine, yes. We think we should know about these nine people. We should at least know their names, right? So we came up with a mnemonic device to help you remember the names of all the nine justices. When we did this, the last names uh, of the justices on the court were Kagan, Kennedy, Thomas, Ginsburg, Breyers. Sorry, Breyer, no S. Roberts, Alito, Sotomayor. And that was, there were eight. And there was the possibility of a guy named Merrick Garland being named to the court. Remember him? justice that almost was. Okay, so we had Kagan, Kennedy, Thomas, Ginsburg, Breyer, Robert Toledo, Sotomayor, and maybe Garland. So how we did it was first letter, last name, K-K-T-G-B-R-A-S, maybe G. Now it's definitely Gorsuch, but the G still kind of works, right? So we decided to turn that into a song to help you remember, which goes like this. Get 
kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot all summer. Maybe. Goddamn. Kittens kicked a giggly blue robot This episode of More Perfect was produced by me, Jad Abumrad, with Susie Lechtenberg, Kelsey Padgett, Sean Ramsfirm, Tobin Lowe, Soren Wheeler, Alex Overington, Dylan Keefe, and Ellie Mistal, with fact-checking by Michelle Harris. Supreme Court audio is from Oye, a free law project in collaboration with the Legal Information Institute at Cornell. Leadership support for More Perfect was provided by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Charles Evans Hughes Memorial Foundation, and the Joyce Foundation. <laughs>